So turn with me to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set amongst our members so as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce flesh? fresh? Pardon me. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this word to our soul. We pray that you would help us to take careful thought to our tongue and how we use it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us and equip us this morning with your word that we might not sin against you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the evil of the tongue, Charles Swindle, or Chuck Swindle, as many of us know him, said the tongue is a two-ounce slab of trouble. Uh, That is indeed what it is. Genuineness of faith is in question here in this passage, and James wants to get down to the genuineness of faith, whether or not we have a faith that is true and will last, and whether it is truly in Christ Jesus alone, and whether or not uh, uh, the faith that we have is justified by the presence of the fruits of true and genuine faith, a godly life, a carefully cultivated use of our tongue, amongst other things, uh, that subject of which we'll take up this morning. Genuineness of faith is a question here that frankly confronts all of us as Christians. Is my faith in Christ Is the faith that I hold in my God, is it genuine? Is it true? Is it lasting? Will it endure through the test of time? Will it endure through trials and suffering and difficulty? Well, James is writing to a church that is experiencing, to people, scattered people who have experienced uh, difficult trials, various trials as he uh, shares, dispersed people throughout the world, people anywhere and everywhere, who are suffering in various ways. Some are wealthy, some are poor. Each have a, need to have a particular perspective on their current financial state. Each are to rely in some way upon God for wisdom and enduring through both forms of trials. And yes, both poverty and riches are trials. Having a lot, frankly, Jesus told us that um, it is harder for someone who is wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God than for someone who is poor. Uh, He illustrated it quite clearly. It's it's more easy for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for the rich or wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. This is true. A latent danger rests within themselves, whether rich or poor is something more that James uncovers in chapter 1 as we trace back the, the, the context of where he gets to in, Genesis, in James 3 this morning. 
is a latent danger that rests within themselves. Lust entices, carries away. There is the bearing of sin, and sin leads to death. So all of these things are before them in chapter 1, but Christians are to live Christianly. That's simply stated uh, for us as Christians. We're to live Christianly. We are to live a life of faith, and that faith must be proven in the midst of great trials and suffering, uh, both trials within and those without. Trials of faith brought on by our own struggle with sin. Trials of faith confronted by our own embrace of lust. Trials of faith brought on through very difficult circumstances, uh, through our earthly circumstances of being wealthy or poor, but also many, many others. There are many practical means that are stated as James holds this out. Uh, We have to be quick to hear. We need to be slow to speak, slow to anger. We're to put aside all filthiness and wickedness, to receive the word humbly, to prove ourselves doers of the word of God, not just hearers only, because hearers only delude themselves. If we desire the blessing of God, then we are commanded to do the word of God. James's advice is very, very deeply practical. He wants us to prove out the significance and the seriousness and the authenticity of true faith. And then he briefly hints at the subject of chapter 3 in chapter 1 in verse 26. where He tells us that we are to carefully guard and bridle our tongue. Now this is, this is a subject that we'll take up with a greater intensity in this week. But he unfolds a number of other things, uh, continuing practical directions of what real faith looks like, of what the fruits of genuine faith really manifest themselves to be in the life of a believer. Bridle our tongue, visit orphans and widows in in their needs, keep ourselves unstained from the world is what he commands us. Don't play favorites or show partiality. Be a merciful person. Add works to your faith as a justification to its authenticity. In the end, he says, faith without works is dead. An extraordinary test of the genuineness of faith is found in what comes out of our mouths. And that's where it comes to this week. And he lifts up predominantly as an example teachers and pastors, those who prophesy the oracles of God. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now he's speaking as a pastor. He's speaking as someone who teaches the word of God, unfolds the truth of the word of God, explaining it clearly to the people, and then laying upon them the word of God as rebuke, as instruction and training for righteousness. And he says something extraordinarily true about teachers. Don't, don't let many of you desire to become or, or actually become teachers because there is a greater judgment for teachers. Maybe some of you are thinking about teaching in some way. Now, he's not, he's not explicitly clear. Teaching the word of God is a wide swath of, of practical application, really. Uh, whether you're teaching in a, in a small school, uh, whether you're a homeschool teacher, whether you teach a ladies' Bible study or a mixed Bible study, whether or not you simply open the word in some way and read for little souls, whether or not you open the word and read to your husband or your, to your wife or to your children at night, you're teaching, you're teaching. You're teaching the word of God in some form, in some way. And so he says, let not, any of, not many of you become formalized public teachers, but certainly the warning is for all of us who in some way teach, whose lives teach, who open the word of God and in some way expound or, or explain its meaning in a larger sense. But let not many of you become teachers. There's a warning here in the passage to to, to teachers and to those who publicly speak, who are observed to preach in the church and to teach and to expound to God's people. I recently heard of a, a church that is struggling with um, certain members amongst the congregation who wished, who wished to teach and to pe- preach publicly 
Well, this is a passage for them and for you and for me this morning as well. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. James, the apostle, is writing to people in the congregation. He calls them my brethren. This my brethren is to all of them. There is a stricter judgment for teachers. Therefore, don't rush to become one, because you will be held to a stricter judgment. Now, this is not a negative perspective in the sense that don't become a teacher because your life is going to be held to a higher level of of divine accountability, and therefore you should never do it. No, rather, think soberly and carefully before you desire the teaching gifts. The truth is that there are many... There are many who are self-styled teachers. They imagine that, well, I have, I have oratorical gifts. I have gifts of speech. I'm a real grammar, a grammar uh, a Nazi, as it were. I, I carefully watch. I, 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 I see the constructs of speech. I know direct objects and indirect objects. I understand adverbial usage. Therefore, I can teach and expound the word of God. Or there, there are others who simply say, I don't have all those gifts, but I have extreme skill of speech. They can argue the socks off of anyone. You could argue with them and debate with them. They'll win every debate. Or there are others who have charismatic gifts. They are so wonderfully able to grab and arrest your attention from the pulpit. I watched a man like that this last week. His name is Reverend Dr. Caleb L. J. Lines. This was shared to me with me by, by our resident uh, internet cop uh, who, is, uh, who watches preachers and teachers. Uh, Arnold shared this with me. <clears throat> I'm not sure where that phone is coming from, but if someone can find that in the hallway or wherever, it would be a great thing. Thank you. Um, pardon us for the interruption. <clears throat> we're in a building that we use and uh, and rent, and sometimes we're not quite sure as to uh, as to uh, who might be calling during a service. At any rate, I watched this video this last week. It was Reverend Doctor Caleb J. Lines, and he's he has extraordinary ca- uh, capabilities. Um, this man graduated with uh, far more advanced degrees even than myself. I have a Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary, but he has uh, he has a Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School, and he's got one from Yale Divinity School. He's got a Ph.D. from Duke Divinity School. Uh, his church is United Church of Christ. Uh, he is uh, he is qualified within the Disciples of Christ. He is mem- he is a member, and I think a treasurer of the Progressive Christian Alliance. And right there, you're. You're, you're questioning right there whether uh, the qualifications of this person. His church mant- mantra is, uh, he's in San Diego, uh, California. His church mantra is authentic, inclusive, progressive. Now think of that. If you're going to invent uh, some kind of a, a catchphrase for your church, something that the community needs to know in three words that are important about this community of believers, what would you say? Well, their church has, has decided the most important thing is to say that it's authentic, it's inclusive, and it's progressive. It tells you a lot. Well, this is what he had to say, and he is a teacher who should take this seriously this warning from James. Mary was absolutely not in a Christmas sermon where he was up front, there were Christmas decorations everywhere, and a Christmas tree right behind him. Uh, I don't think Christmas trees belong in pulpits at all. But there he was. <clears throat> And he said, Mary was absolutely not, positively not, a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. He says, Matthew is trying to interpret prophecy from Isaiah, but he accidentally misinterprets. He needs to hear that warning from James this morning because he's going to be judged, not by his social score for authenticity, inclusiveness, and progressiveness, but rather he will stand before the judgment seat of God. Such will incur a stricter judgment. Or T.D. Jakes, a very popular preacher, I love that man's voice. He has an extraordinary voice. He has a charismatic approach to 
to, to preaching, but he says this, Jesus, when he took up the hum, our human nature, our body and soul, gave up omnipotence, gave up omniscience, gave up omnipresence. He gave up those things. Who was holding up the world while Jesus gave up those things? Because from T.D. Jakes' mind, Jesus is Father. Jesus is Holy Spirit. He believes in one God, not three persons, but a modalistic interpretation of the one God. And so if God gave up omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, how was he keeping the world in its existence? How was the Son held in its place? How was evil dealt with by God and Satan kept in check? Kenneth Copeland from Word Word Faith Ministry says, God has never used sickness to discipline his, his children. Jesus did not claim to be God when he lived on the earth. It would have been impossible for Jesus to have been poor. Believe it in your heart, say it with your mouth. That is the principle of faith. You can have what you say. You see, each of these individuals are going to be held to this same standard. And so will I. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We tend to admire and overvalue the teaching gifts and tend to think the more extroverted, more powerful of speakers, charismatic of preachers, are those with the anointing of God. However... These are not the marks of the more effective pastors and teachers who pastor small churches throughout our our country. The Spirit of God speaking through the foolishness of weak men who preach and women who faithfully teach Sunday schools and Bible studies and fellowships and conferences who carry out these ministries and small bodies of faithful people who attend the Word of God with care and who examine themselves in the Scriptures faithfully to see whether the words they speak are drawn from the word of God with care. They are the ones who are serving the Lord and not themselves, whose ministries God will continue to bless. Jesus, looking at the men around him, at the teachers and rabbis of Israel, commanded his disciples to refuse the title of teacher or of rabbi. He rails against those who are Pharisees in his own time, the religious experts and teachers of his day. And he said, you whitewashed sepulchers, you open graves. Those in public ministry and teaching will invite the more intense divine scrutiny and severer divine judgment. So don't be quick to become a teacher because you imagine that you have specific skills and abilities. Too many young men fill pulpits because someone in their church told them, I just love the way you speak. I just love the insights that you draw out of the passage. You're gifted. You're certainly called. What those young men need to know is whether or not they have been called by God, not people, God. Whether or not God has called them to this sacred and solemn task, not not to an income, not to a living, but to give their lives unto God. A life of service, a willingness to accept a certain level of poverty in our world, to accept that their life is subject to the needs of God, the calling of God to serve, to minister. Too many do not understand it and are very quickly out of the pulpit. Many of the 30-some-odd individuals who went to my seminary class, graduated with me in my seminary class, there are only a very small handful of us in ministry. I believe there are three or four. 10%. This is not a new concept in Scripture. The truth of the matter is that this idea of being judged by what we say and and the way in which we use our tongues is not a new one. Romans chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Isaiah 6, Isaiah standing before the throne of God says, I am a man of unclean lips. Or Peter, who says, those who would love life and see good days, keep let them keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking guile. We don't really tend to think of our speech and our lips and how we use them in our inner dialogue, too. Not just what comes out of our mouth, but, but the inner dialogue of our mind, the words that pass through our thinking. 
we really we really tend to think of our lips in this way in the speech that we have in our voice we really stand with paul we rarely stand with paul in recognition of our tongues as the primary primary evidence of our fallen state we really don't stand with james that 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 the use of our tongues is an indication of our true and saving faith and and a marker or a measurement of whether or not faith is genuine justified by by works in that sense. We don't even share Isaiah's shame of our uncleanness of our speech. Maybe we really haven't come to the consistent conviction that our tongues are a measurement or are a key to God's blessing. Why is the tongue so important? There are four things that the Apostle James wants us to understand about the tongue. Your tongue is a key to the holy life. Your tongue is a key to your holy life, to a holy life. The tongue, secondly, has destructive power. Thirdly, the tongue is uncontrollable. Fourthly, the tongue is inconsistent. All of those things about the tongue are true. First of which is the tongue is the key to a holy life. Verse 2 explains that since all individuals sin in many ways, it would take a perfect individual to keep free of the sins of speech. Now, I think this is exceedingly relevant to us this morning because we are in the midst of a generation that says, because of the imperfections observed in the church, I don't want to come to church. I'm not going to go to church because of hypocrisy. I'm not going to go to church because of the inconsistencies of what I see there between the lives of an individual and what they profess. We all know people who make that claim, and it's it's a sobering one. But let me just tell you this morning, it's a true one as well. It's, it's a true assessment of the church and of Christians in particular. It's true. It's not undeniable. It's, it's, it's undeniably true. But the truth is, that's an excuse. It's an invented excuse as to why not to go to church. It's a reason why men and women and boys and girls come up with this this, non, this, this idea, this truthful statement as a reason for not going to church themselves without recognizing their own inconsistencies of faith, their own hypocrisy over the, what we ought to do and what we, what we actually do. And they fail to take into account what verse 2 says. For we all stumble in many ways. There's a simple statement about the human condition. We all stumble in many ways. This is James, an apostle, saying of himself with inclusive language, we, not only of himself, but also those to whom he is writing, we all stumble in many ways. Isn't that true? There are those who are within the Nazarene church who believe, and there are others outside of the Nazarene church too, who believe that we can achieve a certain state of perfection. I've heard it said that one particular preacher said, I haven't sinned in three years. Well, that's, that's bizarre. Amen. There's a man who doesn't know himself. Amen. That's a foolish statement. It's nonsense. You ever hear such a thing? You should, shouldn't listen to that person at all. They don't know themselves and they don't know their God that they seem to profess. Because if we know God and we see his perfection, we come to an unalterable conclusion about ourselves that we are sinners. We only see our sin in light of his perfection. That's the only way we can see it. So if we don't see our imperfections, then we do not see him. Well, the tongue is a key to a holy life, but the truth is that we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, James has already said that that perfection is impossible because we all stumble in many ways. And there's not an excuse for pastors who say things imperfectly from the pulpit, but we do. And there are times when, when, as I'm seeking to explain something, or some other pastor in some other context may say something that is less than perfect, less than studied or carefully stated, we ought to be forgiving as much as we are able. We ought to gently, graciously go to him and say, this is what you said, and I I just wanted to ask you about that. 
I wanted to point out that this might not have been the best way to say this. I want to ask you what your view about this really is so that you can clarify for me because I'm concerned about the way that you said it. There are some who are men that I greatly respect whose life and ministry is long-term, who have done great things, who have said great things, written very good books, and yet who have said one or two particular things that I seriously disagree with. Well, I have to be gracious, I have to be merciful, and be very slow to judge, because I am not God. I have to be very, very careful before, and, and I would argue against ever doing this, Declaring without a shadow of a doubt, that person is not a Christian. Well, be very, very careful. The truth is that James acknowledges that we all stumble in many ways. Not just a couple of ways. That there might be an imperfection or two found in all of us. No, he says we all stumble in many ways. Maybe some of us are convinced that if we can just get rid of one or two sins will be rock solid, pleasing to God in every way. We all stumble in many ways. Some of us think that if our spouse or a loved one simply would come to grips with one particular problem and change this one thing about their lives, that's what New Year's is all about. I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that. I've got two things on my list. Don't overdo it. Just one thing. We're convinced that if we just change one thing, we'll be a different person. Well, we all stumble, not just in one way, in many ways. There's something comforting in acknowledging that and saying, yes, Lord, I know this is true. Yes, Lord, I do stumble in many ways. There's a necessary recognition of the fact that your pastors, your teachers are imperfect and will say things incorrectly and will do things that might not be in the best interests at times of themselves and their public ministry. I'm not talking about scandalous sins. They should be removed immediately. I'm talking about just just faux pas, normal everyday mistakes. Well, maybe we can recognize as we all share in our mutual ministry together, as we serve the Lord together, as we serve one another, we all stumble in many ways. May God give us a spirit of forgetfulness and forgiveness as we care for one another over the lesser things, over the things that are indifferent, over the things that are minor issues, and recognizing that all of us will be held to a strict judgment of God, but especially those who teach. While the tongue is a key to a holy life, all of us sin in various ways, but the way in which we deal with sin is by the correction of our tongues. Many of us have sinned by way of the use of our speech, both against God and against each other. Sin remains our universal experience. It takes all sorts of forms, but the sins of speech are very, very prominent, are they not? People get up and they say things, and they say things that are extraordinarily wrong or hateful or hurtful. And to be honest, all of us make an assessment of people very rapidly when we meet them by the speech that comes out of their mouth. If someone comes up to us and they're swearing profusely, we we come to a conclusion. We do. Whether we speak that out or not, we come to a conclusion about the state of that person's soul. If they're swearing profusely, we come to the conclusion appropriately. So this is probably not a believer. Not certainly, but probably not a believer. If they're describing all sorts of sexual activity and they're going on and on about it and and they, they, they share with us this is the kind of life that they lead, well, we'd be right to come to the conclusion, well, this is, this is contrary to the word of God. This is probably not a Christian with whom I'm speaking. Speech is an important thermometer, as it were, for, for the state of our soul. Out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Out of the wealth of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out in speech is indicative of the state of the heart. All of us have to admit these sorts of things, hasty words, hateful speech, lies, deceptions, mistruths, sly suggestions, harmful gossip, innuendos, impure speech, 
hurtful words, prideful boasts, coarse speech, filthy language, loose tongues, in so many ways, including words that we ought not to have uttered, in so many ways, neglecting to say the words that we should have uttered, in so many various ways, that inner dialogue of the mind that is filled with bitterness and hatred and unkindness and meanness and takes notes of things, mental notes of things that we would never utter with our mouths. Oh, but it's dialogue, it's speech, it's the tongue of the mind. And it all has an impact. Words of encouragement, praises to God that were unspoken, songs sung only half-heartedly in the Sunday service, nurturing and admonishing words that we never gave because of a lack of fear or, frankly, a lack of concern or too much fear or a lack of concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, self-challenges that should have been stated to our soul that were never spoken because of a lack of fortitude and a lack of strength in our will, rebuke that we should have made to our own soul that we never did. James really isn't getting after us for our sins of the tongue, but he's affirming that if we only do get a, a hold of it, exercise a modicum of control, we'll find that it will lead to a a control of the sin so prevalent in our lives, to control our speech would be to control the whole ship of our bodies and its cargo of sin. And this is how James illustrates the power of speech, not just in corrupting our souls, but also bringing the whole body into subjection to the Lord and his holiness. He tells us about the small piece of the bit that goes into a horse's mouth and by it, as you wield the reins, the rider is able to steer that horse in one direction or another, or to halt them or to let them go. All of those various commands are illustrated by the use of the bit. Now a horse, if you've never stood next to a horse, maybe some of us haven't, but a horse is a magnificent beast. They're extraordinarily large, some of them. And if you stand next to a horse, you realize the, the immense power and the strength that they have. Why they, why they listen to us is extraordinary. Why they yield to a human being is always marvelous to me. And yet you put a bit into their mouth and you can guide that beast wherever you have would have it go. You could make it obey you. A, a similar illustration is the rudder of a ship. Think of a massive ship, a great ocean liner. And look at the rudder on the back. It's it pales in comparison to the size. And yet it guides that ship on, on, on the, the entire surface of the ocean. One small rudder will direct that ship in whichever direction it goes. Miss that rudder and the ship is aimless. It will wander. It will float. It will go wherever the, 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 the powerful forces of the ocean take it. The rudder controls the ship. The bit controls the horse. In reality, they control the, the direction of both those, those great, great, great and powerful things, the ship or the horse. Well, some of us may have been asking in light of all of James's very practical directions, how can I control my life? How can I, how can I justify that my faith is genuine, true, by works that, that immediately flow from that faith, that faith that is justified by grace. How can I control these sinful inclinations within me? How do I work at a holy life? It begins at the, at the, at the very beginning with controlling our speech. How many private sins have not begun at first with an inner dialogue of justifying why we should engage in sin? The language of the tongue, the speech, oh, it has an impact on how we sin and what ways we sin and the, pro the proliferation of sin. How do I go about proving out my salvation, evidencing myself to be saved? How do I go about pleasing the Lord in the way that I live? It begins with that speech that, that first begins in the mind. Have we thought yet about the tongue? The tongue is key to a godly life. It's kind of an unexpected lesson from James here. He's not really teaching us that. If we can master the tongue, and of course we potentially can, then we can master any other temptation that comes along. No, James has just said in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. 
He's not saying we used to do that. He's saying this is our present condition. And this is the condition that will last until we arrive uh, with the Lord. The Lord brings all things to an end. What he's really telling us is is that if we master the tongue, then we've really mastered the whole thing. To win the battle of the tongue is to win the is to win the war. In order to believe this, really, we need to understand <clears throat> that the use of our tongues is so much more than just the spoken word, as I've been alluding to already. It's really our unspoken words and our spoken words and our inner motivations that behind that are behind all of the spoken words that come out of us. The words that are come out that come out of us are only a small percentage of the inner dialogue of our mind and the inner the inner desires of our soul and of our hearts. The words that come out are only a a small portion of what actually happens by way of dialogue and an intentional direction of our thinking and of our speech because there is a battle going on in our mind and in our heart. There are painted word pictures in our mind. There are written words of letters and books. There's the talking through of our speech in our minds, the tempting and deceptive words that happen first that beguile us into sin. There's the fueling of the fires of resentment in our thoughts, the times of filling ourselves up with self-pity and the voice within us that cries injustice and says, I'm not treated as well as anyone else. Everyone else seems to be treated better than me. Oh, we're all victims right now in this generation, aren't we? But if our tongues were under self-control, they would refuse to to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, pride. These things would be cut down before before, before they could find root. The control of the tongue is more about spiritual maturity, growing up in the Lord. I love when I hear from mature men and women, black and white, doesn't matter where they come from, Asian, South American, Hispanic in any form, African, doesn't matter. When you show me a godly, mature Christian man or woman, they don't go on and on about their complaints about how they've been treated. They go on about their need of God. They talk to you about their love of Jesus Christ. I love to run into a fellow Christian Especially someone that I really wouldn't have a lot of interaction with because we don't travel in the same circles. Wherever that may be, it doesn't matter to me. I love to find another Christian. Someone especially who's been around long enough to not say, you know what we need, what the world needs right now is such and such a present. What we really need is a political movement. What we really need is 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 a a non-profit organization, what we really need are reparations. What we really need are, what we really need is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the reconciliation that comes only through God. We need the inner work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of sin. We need the recognition and the humble recognition that I'm owed nothing. My creator owes me nothing. In fact, I have sinned against him and I have forsaken his blessing. More so than anything else, what I need is grace and I do not deserve it. God is is infinite mercy has given me grace in his beautiful son. That's that's the sum total of what we need to come to to, to a recognition of that we may be humbled before God and may see that our hope, our help is in the name of the Lord, not in kings and powers and principalities. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And I think mature Christians, when they get together, recognize that. And there's a certain satisfaction together as they've come to recognize that, yes, our, our, our hope is in the Lord. And, 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 and when people from disparate living conditions and or cultural context can come together and recognize that there is a sameness as well as a recognition in one another of, of the image of God and of the blessing of God in each other's lives, there is a certain reflection of eternal glory in heaven 
when saints can gather together in such a way and mutual recognition of their need of the Lord and of their being a new creation in Christ Jesus. There's a second thing, and that is the destructive power of the tongue. The tongue has enormous power for actual harm. Just like the spark that caught the fire in the great Chicago fire, the tongue is like a spark to a gas-soaked rag of sin. The tongue gets it going. And so we learned some important things about the tongue this morning. According to what James says, it's inflammatory. It's a volatile substance that rests next to the tinder of of our bodies and its members. You think about being on the edge of saying something, something not very kind when you're in an argument. And how many of us have actually done that? Push our buttons just enough and out comes all the vitriol and the hatred. Think of all the many different arguments when we didn't say the things that were going through our minds, right? Well, they were still in your mind, weren't they? That's, those are sins of the tongue. The tongue is a shepherd of our faculties. As it goes, so goes much of the rest. Not only does it lead our faculties, but it stains and defiles them all as well. Left to itself, the tongue is deceitful. It is, it is defiling, and it stains and defiles all other things. What ought to grieve us the most about these stains of sin is not just that it holds us back from a fulfilled and satisfying God-blessed life, but it's nothing compared to the fact that our sin and the stain of our speech makes us offensive to a holy God who is unstained by the taint of sin. His speech is perfect. He is holy. He is just. His speech is perfect as he is. John Calvin has said other vices are corrected by age or by process of time. They drop off from our lives, but from the earliest to the latest days, the baneful influence of the tongue remains. Don't let old age teach you, dear friends. Don't let getting older teach you that you can just say whatever you want. And it's everyone's duty to simply accept that you're plain spoken, that you've earned the right to say whatever you want to say. Let your speech be sprinkled with salt. Let your conversation and the entirety of your life be so impactful upon those who receive you that they would say their speech, their way of life, their very conduct, their, their thoughts of their own mind are so, are so bent by the word of God, so impacted by the word of God. They are a reflection of the holiness of God, the God whom they serve. Thirdly, the tongue is uncontrollable. God gave man and woman their joint dominion over the whole creation. The birds of the sky, the tilling of the earth, the beasts of the field and the forest. Adam named all of the denizens of the earth. He, he named the birds and the, the great beasts. This is what he did. Well, that, that dominion is still exercised. There's no beast on the face of the earth that is in, in some way been tamed or used by man for some purpose. By, by contrast, though, no man can tame the tongue. <laughs> I certainly can't tame another person's tongue. Don't think this way. Well, that, how far is that going to go? How effective will that be? We can train and maybe teach our children to not say something in particular, but you can't change what they're thinking. You cannot tame their inner voice. You cannot change their inner bitterness. One writer says that the tongue is always liable to break out as if it were untamed, half-tamed, or poorly tamed and waiting to break free from the imposed restrictions only to turn quite savage and destructive. Many of us have seen moments like that when someone is brought to an end of themselves. Like when, or, or when someone is confronted by something. Let, let's say there's a parent <clears throat> and someone criticizes the child. What is the parent about to do? More often than not, the parent's going to let go with their own invective against that person in the defense of their children. Mama bears or Papa bears. Criticize something about the character of a child and watch mother or father. What about if you get into an accident? People will get out, and normally they'll be relatively kind at first, but before long, fists might fly, won't they? Because someone will blame the other. Well, you stopped abruptly. Well, you went too quickly. 
Next thing you know, they're slugging at each other. <clears throat> James knows us too well. If we were to examine our pasts honestly and humbly, we could see at times in our lives there really was no restriction on our tongues. And even now, privately, dear friend, what kind of a person are you with regard to the dialogue of your own inner mind and heart? What kind of speech do you regularly make use of? You know, I think the thing that we need to recognize from the passage this morning is that if you do struggle with your speech, Jesus can help you. If you really do struggle with your own inner bitterness and you hold things against people and your own inner dialogue is not helpful, don't don't just set a new resolution. Bring this in prayer to God. Didn't James tell us that if we lack anything, that we can go to God and we can ask for of him and we can ask for his wisdom that will help us to guard carefully over our tongue and he will generously give to us his wisdom and he will do it without reproach. Jesus can help you change your speech. Jesus can help you be more effective, more godly in the way in which you engage with people in the way that you speak. Ask of him. Ask of him. All of us possess soft spots and bruises, things about which we, we're sensitive to and things that frankly will we'll, we'll push that hateful speech more to the fore. truth is that only the indwelling supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ can break the power of reigning sin and tame the wild beast of the tongue. But he can. And God will. You need to desire it. You need to desire that, in fact, you want the blessing of the Lord. And you want more accurately to reflect the saving faith that is present within you. You want to glorify God more so with your speech and with the way that you talk and the way in which you treat people emotionally with the language that comes out of your mouth too. To be less angry and hateful, wicked and tearing down and far more gracious, kind, humble, gentle, self-controlled, things that are the fruits of the Spirit. Ask of God. Only the grace and strength of God can choke off those hurtful words in mid-sentence before they issue forth from our throat. Fourth and final point is the tongue is inconsistent. It is, isn't it? And James illustrates that very quickly. And just we can curse and tear apart each other with the things that we say and at the same time offer blessing. Oh, Lord, bless God bless you. I'm going to pray for you. And we lift up, oh, Lord, bless and help this person. But then on Sundays when they bring the wrong dessert or they forget to bring a dessert at the morning coffee time, oh, the person's so forgetful. Of course, we don't do that in this church. I'm sure we don't. There's a spirit of love and of mercy in this congregation that's wonderful. That's what I love about you all. But we need to remember that. Remember that the same person whom we criticize bears the same image of God that we have that we praise. When we praise God and say, "Lord, uh, who are you? Who are we that you should be mindful of us? You are extraordinary in your care and your love for me as a human being." And then we tear apart our brother or sister in the Lord, or say things about them that are embarrassing to other persons, or share gossip, or rip them to shreds, depending upon how angry we may be in any given moment. The truth is that what we've just done is we've blessed the image of God, and then we've torn apart the image of God as we've torn apart our brother and sister in the Lord. And James is saying that both cannot be present in our speech as Christians. The point is that the Bible says that there is an impossibility in the life of a genuine believer that, that sin should continue to coexist with a state of grace. Yes, what James just said here, we all stumble in many ways, and that's going to continue to be the state of the human person this side of eternity. But the Christian is striving against sin continually. The Christian is laboring against sin, recognizing sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, pleading with forgiveness to, of God for their sins. 
The Christian does not grow complacent with sin, does not entertain sin within the soul, does not embrace sin into the bosom. There may be a season in which we are ignorant, unaware of, or struggling against that sin. But James says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. They ought not to be this way. So, dear friends, in conclusion, James, the pastor, has come out and said, look, we cannot be this way when we have been brought into the family of God by the precious blood of the Savior. We must bear with one another. We must love one another. Jesus said that the royal laws, we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. The royal law of love and of neighbor is we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. This is where we have to begin. A new respect for the care and the image of God, which is seen in the members of his family, to watch carefully over the conduct of our lives, to watch very, very carefully over the rudder of our body and of our mind and of our holiness, our tongue. Our tongue. Controlled speech and uncontrolled speech, obedience and disobedience, grace and bondage, sin and righteousness, they cannot mix, they cannot coincide, they cannot coexist, nor are they equal and codependent. Just as the sweet water will be corrupted by the unclean, so too will our our lives be polluted by an uncontrolled tongue. Let us recognize that the tongue is inconsistent and that the tongue is key to a godly life. May God help us not to engage in a critical spirit, defamatory, unloving speech, but rather out of a heart of love to use speech that is sprinkled with salt, that pleases the Lord, that seeks his blessing, that undergirds and builds up and edifies rather than tearing down. My dear friends, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, if you are concerned about your speech, if God has impacted your heart this morning by his word, if he has convinced you that so much of your life has been filled with dark and wicked and horrible and filthy and odious speech, there is forgiveness with God. The Holy Spirit can come and bind up the wounds of our soul, and he can enable us to be freed from that dialogue that's so destroys and defiles. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us.